everyone, you're listening to Angel Nears the Podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and our guest today is Ed Sturbance, an accomplished enterprise sales leader and senior executive, a true rainmaker, and a musician in his spare time. Today, we're talking with Ed about the finer points of rainmaking. But before we get into that, Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great, great to be here. We're excited to have you. So we always sort of start these podcasts off with the same question. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, but, you know, I, I know Ed very well. He's been like an uncle to me for many years. We've grown up seeing each, a lot of each other. Uh, but for the listeners that might not be as familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself. I will. I was born and raised in the Midwest and moved out to California in the 1970s. I went to Purdue where I got degrees in computer science and industrial management, which really came in handy because I went into high tech sales when I came to California with IBM. I worked my way. I, I call it working my way up. I started at IBM, went to a smaller company, went to a smaller company, and ended up doing startups, which to me was working my way up. On the other hand, I was a sales guy, then I was a manager, and then I was a C-level executive in a number of companies. I've done uh, eight startups, one of which was uh, was very good, one of which was okay, and the others uh, pretty much DOA. Just so you know, competition is something I learned at a very tender age. I'm one of 15 children. And uh, actually, the the eldest living of that group. So, I am now retired, but not I haven't passed away. I've just passed to something else. So, <laughs> that's a bit about who I am. Just I know, and I know we're just scratching the surface there. But you know, today we're going to focus on rainmaking, something you're very familiar with. So, uh, tell us. Let's let's get into the basics. What makes a rainmaker, and what's so special about him or her? That that person. What I think makes a rainmaker specifically are, are probably three things. One is it's someone who can consistently deliver a number. If you've got uh, a million dollars to deliver, you do it. You do it year in and year out. Second thing is th these are people who are not afraid of big deals. You know, it's funny, but there are some folks who when they see a huge opportunity, can't do it. When they see the little ones, it's, it's uh, less risk, I guess, but they can do it. But to be a rainmaker, you don't have time to do a gazillion little deals. You better find a few big ones and make them stick. And the third thing that I've found consistent among rainmakers over my career, which, by the way, lasted about 50 years, is never lie. Never. I mean, you only have one integrity. And it's funny how word gets around the industry if you're making things up and, and they're not true. So you're dedicated to the task. You're not afraid of going after the big whales and, uh, and you don't lie. That's what makes a rainmaker, that tenacity, integrity like that. All right. Well, thanks for breaking that down. I'm going to go ahead and assume you're not lying because you were in the, uh, doing this for 50 years. So you must have been pretty successful <laughs> yeah, at that. I was. Thank you. <laughs> but tell us, you know, uh, were you born a rainmaker or is it something you can become? I was not born a rainmaker. I don't, there may have been somebody who was, I haven't met them. It's kind of like as a salesperson, you always hear about so-and-so got a bluebird, which is a deal that kind of flew in and you got the commission check. I've never seen one. It's like the Loch Ness monster. And, and I've also never seen a born rainmaker. It, so here's why selling is a process. It's not an event and, and it's not three martinis at lunch and schmoozing. It, it is absolutely a, a process, a definable process, which I began to learn uh, at IBM, which, by the way, leads me to the following, which is this. Back 
when I started, which would have been in the 1970s in this particular case, IBM did a very nice job, as did many other companies. Xerox and IBM, I guess, were the two big names and people who in high tech would take aboard college graduates typically and train them up. And think of that as an on-ramp, on-ramp into that way of life. Those are kind of gone today, and, and it's, a lo- it's a shame. It's lost. You come out of college now, and if you want to learn to be a rainmaker, it's much tougher. Finding a mentor is a good idea. Reading all you can is a good idea. But most companies just say, come on, it's on the job, and uh, you'll learn as you go. I found starting with IBM, I learned the fundamentals, and I moved on to smaller smaller and smaller pools where I could swim and have a, a much greater effect, had more leverage than I had in a huge company like IBM. So how do you become one? Well, you learn the process and, and you stick to it. And uh, and it's really not that hard in, in the sense of learning the process. It's like saying to you, it's not that hard to teach you how to hit a baseball, but then when you have to do it against a major league pitcher, it gets tougher. But you, at least you know what the process is. And that, that's kind of how you become a rainmaker. Yeah. So tell us, you know, about your process. How did you learn to do it? You already mentioned, you know, you started at IBM. What maybe what were some of the major takeaways there that you then brought into your next gig? And how did you kind of grow into this rainmaker? Well, I can tell you that I started like everybody else, just learning the process. The process briefly, the way I learned it breaks down into seven steps. And the first one is rapport. You walk in, you meet somebody, or you, these days you do it on Zoom or, or however you meet somebody, and you need to establish some kind of a can I even stand to talk to you basis, and that's rapport. You tend not to be too familiar or too flippant, but you do want to build a rapport. If you're talking to somebody you know used to be a quarterback at UCLA, you mention that you love UCLA football. I mean, But then you move on to the second stage, which is earning the right to talk business. Where I grew up, we call that uh, an IBS. It, it, it's a, what it does is it says, look, I've worked with companies much like yours, and we have been able to really help them in many ways, most of which bottom line gains for them. Would you like to hear how we did that? And, and if they do want to hear how you did that, then you can move on to the third step, which is where most rookie reps and most never going to be a rainmaker people fall off the wagon. The third step isn't, well, first, let me tell you what a cool product we have. We, we had this idea and we really built something fabulous. Nobody cares. The third thing needs to be, let me ask you this. When we worked with Xerox, we found that their problem was they ran out of toner. Do you have that problem? What I'm looking for here is I want you to tell me what it is you're looking to buy. Instead of me telling you I've got a really cool thing about which you know nothing and may not care. Mm-hmm. But once I find that, that I have a, well, a solution for a problem that you have and I have sold it elsewhere, you might want to hear what happens next. The next is when I finally tell you what it is we do. And after that, uh, the next step is, is to say, well, you know, given that we've agreed you have the problem and given that you now understand that I have fixed it for Xerox, is there any particular reason I shouldn't send you about five of these? And by the way, if that's, uh, that form has got carbon paper under it, please press hard. You know? Generally speaking, what happens next is no, no, I don't think I am ready to buy five <laughs> of those. And so what you do is you manage the objections, whatever they might be. And then mm-hmm. finally, you close. And, and that's the second place where most rookies fall down. Closing a deal is not 
as I said before, is not an event. It's a process. What do I need to do with the CFO? Does your lawyer need to see the contract before we go any further? Who actually signs this? Do you? And if not, who should I be talking to? So if you just learn to do that, and that, by the way, can happen in what rarely does it happen in one sales call, but it has to happen. And it almost always has to happen in that order. And you almost have to do, always have to do all seven steps. Mm -hmm. So it could take you months to get through that process, but that is the process. And it turns out I I had in uh, one of my positions, I had uh, a quota one year of $682 million dollars. And on January 1st, that's a frightening thing to contemplate. But if you just start one step at a time, you can get there. So we did we did it that way, and we did get there. And I would tell you this, when you get to a, to a sales call, and you know you've got all of those steps in front of you, the first time we talk, if you have an objective, and generally it's to get the next call, by the way, the first couple to three times you talk, you have to make sure you never go into a sales call with more than three objectives because you're not going to get more than three done. So don't be distracted. Start by making sure if your objective, the first objective needs to be, make sure we have a second conversation. The second needs to be, let's come away from this with me having an understanding of, of what your pain is. What, what in your business can I help you fix? And that's, that's kind of how it works. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's a lot there. And, uh, you know, you just go through it. So naturally you can tell you, you did this for, for many, many years. And so the process is the same. It was the same at IBM and, and it was the same as you kind of move through smaller and smaller startups. Is that true? Yeah. And I think it's the same when you buy a car. I mean, mm-hmm. if you, if you've ever bought a car, the first mm-hmm. thing that happens is you walk in and, and the sales guy chats you up. How you doing? Rainy day. Jeez, we, <laughs> it's funny. It's raining this late in California, blah, blah, blah. And then they go, yeah, by the way, you're here at just the right time because it's the end of our quarter. And we've got some really sweet deals. What are you looking for? So what did I just do? I made a little rapport. I made a little business thing. You're at the end of the quarter. I can do a deal. And what are you looking for is your opportunity to tell me how I'm going to sell you something. And then you tell me what you need. I move to the presentation. I go, oh, you know what? Have you seen our RAV4? Boom. Let's go look at that. You want that in red or blue? Well, what else you got? And then you talk about, well, what do you need? Bigger, smaller, faster, cheaper, what? And you tell me, and pretty soon I need to talk to my manager about that ridiculous price you just asked for. And then you, you drive off a new Toyota. You know, that it, it's the same. It's the same buying a car or, or buying a room full of, uh, of servers. Right, right. Room full of servers running imaginary codes. So, okay, so you, you clearly get this stuff. And, and I want to kind of dive into maybe some of the tactics of going through those steps so, so let's do it. Talk about planning your, your sales call and, you know, what should be included when you're thinking of like a pre-call checklist? I, I keep it short. The first thing I do is I make sure I go back and refresh myself on what business are you in? I'm going to call you Oleg and I need to know why and why do you want to talk to me? Because what's important here is that I keep focused on you, on your business needs and I can introduce to you a solution for a problem you may not even be aware you have, but I know that everybody else in your business has, and I can therefore, if I refresh myself before the call, can refer to things that sound like I've known them all my life. I've actually known them about 20 minutes. And I will begin the call with, with something that sounds, what, what I don't want to sound like when we begin the call is like a salesman. 
this is not a social call and this is not a party, but I do want to sound like somebody who is approachable, that we can have a conversation and, uh, and it should be a, a not totally unpleasant experience. Let me, can I, I'm sorry, let me pause you there. Cause that's actually so interesting. How do you do that? How do you prepare to just, uh, you know, be in a good mood when you have a sales call coming up? It, it's the same. I was, I worked my way through college as a nightclub entertainer and Every night I did at least two, usually three, but sometimes on the weekends, four shows. And I can tell you that with an impacted wisdom tooth, the third show on a Wednesday night, you are not necessarily going to be really jacked up to want to get started and meet these wonderful strangers sitting in front of you. And so what you do is before you start, you sit back and you go, okay, what do we got out there? We got a bunch of people I've never met. And what are we going to do? We're going to make them smile. You're looking for people to enjoy themselves. That's, that's the, that's the close in, in that business. And, and so I just don't ever go into a sales call without stopping beforehand, shifting. As somebody said to me, even yet today, do you have water? Did you turn off your phone? Are you going to pay attention to me? Those are the kinds of things that you need to do. And so when I get on a sales call, I am talking to a customer or a potential customer. I am focused on what I know their business is. I know where I'm going to try to take this conversation uh, before we start. But I'm also listening very hard for the hints that if you get the customer talking, it's, I mean, they'll tell you everything. They will tell you. Not only will they tell you their problem, they'll tell you why they're still looking for a solution. So clearly, whoever they're using now to do whatever it is, isn't enough. And they will basically tell you what it is. And so if you're listening and you can do what they're telling you that they need, then you've got a reason to move forward and pre present your proposal, even, even in the cloud. By that, I don't mean the computer cloud, but I mean, you can even kind of you can draw big wide lines around what your solution is and then tailor it as you go when you find out what specifically is needed in that situation. Yeah, emotionally cloudy. That's not the kind of cloud we're usually talking about on the podcast. No, exactly. Although, <laughs> but we all, but to, that takes us back to your question, doesn't it? I mean, we all have emotionally cloudy days, but you can't afford to have them on the phone with a customer. You better, you better get that set aside and focus on why am I talking to you and get you to tell me what it is you need. Right. Well, great advice. Simple advice for, uh, you know, would-be salespeople and would-be podcasters. So thank you for that. Let's keep going. Talk about the importance of showing the money to the customer. What does that even mean and why is it important? Well, it, it means pretty much everything. And there are two things. If I can't do one of the following two things, we have no need to talk ever again. One is I can drive your top line up. And two is I can drive your expense line down. If there's a third thing, I don't know what it is. But I, but I do know this. I was having a conversation with a, a soon-to-be customer, and he ended up being a customer, by the way. And he said, I, I'm not understanding how that helps me. And I said, well, let's try this. And, and by the way, this was face-to-face -face in his office. And I said, do you have a dollar? And he said, uh, yeah. I said, give it to me. So he gave me a dollar. And I reached in my pocket and I pulled out $10 and I gave it to him. I said, would you like to do that again? And he said, well, yeah, I'm not an idiot. I said, good. Would you like to do that 100,000 times? Because that's what we're talking about. If you give me 100,000, I can deliver you a million. And then they want to find out. I mean, if you're not, if you 
aren't producing money for the for the customer. They're not going to be a customer very long, and you need to be able to objectively measure what that dollar return is going to be. So the ROI becomes really, really important or there's no point being there. So do you always use uh, the dollar, $10 model or is there, does it ever get more complex than that? How do you, how do you show the money? Well, it almost always gets more complex than that. It just happened. This guy, this guy was, I could tell in the first five or 10 minutes was kind of fun. So I thought uh-huh. he might, he might like, you know, but how do you show the money? Well, in each situation, I mean, pick something. If I can demonstrate to you generally through references or generally through uh, in, in the high tech business in the, in the computer, the IT industry, there are people like Gartner company who rank everybody that does what you do. And what you want to do is take a look at all of those metrics that somebody like a Gartner would have and say, well, here, here's where we are versus these guys and and so you gain a little credibility and then you start talking about specific incidents where you have helped somebody take what used to be 3.0 down to 2.6 on their expense line or from 3.0 up to 5.9 on their revenue line and you prove it is it harder for that first deal when you might not have those like customer relationships already yeah yeah it is and, and there when you don't have the re- the references, what you have to do is sell the logic. You know, there's an old thing in the law, which says if you're in court and you're not winning and, and you, you, you know that you kind of have a pretty weak case, you argue the law. It's a bad law. Uh, we shouldn't even be here talking about this. But if the law is on your side, but the facts don't, don't favor you. So then you talk about when the law doesn't work, you talk about the facts. When the facts aren't helping you, you talk about the law. And that is the same thing when you're selling something. And you, you're not, none of this is fantasy, by the way. This is just presenting the facts that are going to help move your case forward. Makes a lot of sense. Actually, you're on a good, let me branch that a little bit away to tell you that I sold for IBM for a good number of years. And then I sold for a company called Tandem Computers. And when I'd walk in the office with my IBM card and throw it on a desk, people would kind of go, ooh, IBM. And when I walked in the office and threw it on my Tandem card, they go, who's that? Are they the people that make the, is that Radio Shack? I said, no, that's Tandy. This is Tandem. And so you need to know which one of those you are. And, and that is kind of the same situation as I've got 10 references or I have none. It, you really are facing the same problem. It's really about credibility, isn't it? And so you need to earn that. And there's no easier way than references. And when you don't have those, you better have a good case. So like that. I see. I see. Right. So if you have the the big shiny IBM card, you know, flash it, people will get that right away. But if you don't have that, you, you better find a way to build your case with logic. Yeah. And you need to explain why. I, I'm sure you're talking to IBM. I mean, we all do. I worked there for 10 years and and they're a very reputable firm. And of course, we all know and love them. But here's something they never thought to do. And then you talk about what you do and go, wouldn't that be, what would it be worth to you, Oleg, if I told you that your business today, if you're typical in your industry, will go down because your computers go down maybe six, eight minutes a year, maybe two days a year. Something's going down, a system doesn't work. We've all faced it. We've all tried to get on some website to order something or, or to do some transaction where, you know, you get the error 404, please come back later, blah, blah, blah. And I wonder how many sales do you think you'd lose per hour if that happened in your business? 
Let's pick a number. Give me a clue. How much stuff do you guys sell? We can figure it out. I can look at your your annual revenue and divide by the number of hours in a year and get a number. Are we, are we together on this so far? Good. Well, what if I tell you I can take that down to 99.99999 availability, which, by the way, means that your system, if it goes down at all this year, will be down for six minutes or less. Now, what is that worth compared to your current environment? Is that something you'd like to talk about? Because that's what we do. And and so you can build a case if you understand what the customer's pain point is and if you understand what your product does. And that's more or less the approach that, that I have used and it's worked nicely for me. Right. And, and that just goes back to why that time to prepare and understand the bigger picture and, and what the customer might be experiencing, what problems they might be having is so important. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on. How do you, let's talk about customer objections. Yep. How do you turn, how do you take an objection and maybe turn that into an objective? Well, that's actually the magic that happens uh, in sales. And, and often when you hear an objection, the first thing you have to think to yourself, is that real? Is what that person just asked me a real thing? Or is that kind of the street knowledge and, and if it's a real thing, then you, you have a different way to go than you do if you know it isn't true. So if it isn't true, you just knock it down. And you can demonstrate that any number of ways. Not It's not hard, by the way. But if it's a tough a tough objection, you have to ask, now, what is the, why are you asking me that? Have you had that experience? Does your, does your current environment have that problem? And when it does, what does it cost you? What are we trying to fix? Actually, it's a great, what, when a good objection comes up, if I could fix that, what would that be worth? And they'll just hand you the R and the ROI. And, uh, you know, and even better if they say, well, we're working with so-and-so. Well, if you know your chops and, and you know your competition, which you better, if they tell you you're working, well, again, let's just take IBM, which I think is a fine, reputable firm going out of business as, as we speak. But... Because they ran out of good ideas about about the time I left, oddly enough. But you know, if if that's your competition, you need to know. You start to talk about they are big, they are solid, they are thorough. They have they will probably generate two thousand six hundred patents this year, and we are small, nimble, and focused on you and your problem. Now, here is how we would address the problem you just raised, and then they'll ask you, "Can you prove that?" And well, as a matter of fact, yes, I can. And so we can then talk about how we do that. So a good objection is an opportunity to find what the R is in ROI. And it's it's a good opportunity to make a deal because, you know, once you run into the good objection, you kind of know exactly what problem you need to solve. Can you talk about, can we go back to the bad objection and, and how you handle that? So when you, you, you said you swat it or uh, you knock it down, what's important to do when, once you knock it down? Do you go right? into you go back into your logic or, or talk about maybe the experience of doing that and what it might look like to just knock down a bad objection. Again, I'd want to get the customer talking. That's an interesting objection. And it's a common theme that I hear. I'm curious why you would ask that question here. Is that a problem that you have ever personally experienced in this company? I mean, you need to first find out, and it, well, no, but I, you know, I've got a cousin whose brother-in-law had this problem that cost him a fortune. Uh, you know, you hear those stories. But I want to know more about you and your experience with this problem. And if they don't have, if it isn't their company's problem, then you just go, let's get back to things we can do here at, at Kraft Foods. 
because you apparently don't have that. That issue you just, just raised is, is frightening. We have never seen it. I've heard of it before, but I've never seen it, and I have no customers who are experienced it. So you just want to make that go away by make, if, if the customer raises an objection, they can't give you an example of it. Then it isn't an objection. It's just noise. And, and you just make them go, well, you're right. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you kind of shed light on the fact that it's not really relevant to the situation. Maybe not by telling them that, but you sort of outline what's obvious in front of you and say, hey, let's get back to this. Yeah, they give you the answer, actually. And, and that, you mentioned a good objection. A good objection is one where when you give them the answer, they've given you the key. That is a good objection because they then told you why they're talking to you. And I always like those. Right. And then that gives you more prep work for your next call. It does. And, and let me add, again, something I said early on, or maybe I didn't, but I should, which is, Two things about when you talk about objections, when you talk about the competition, which is almost going to be part of that dialogue. First one is never badmouth the competition because the guy you're talking to or the, the man or woman to whom you're speaking may have a, an identical twin working for that other company. So, so it's just dumb and there's no upside anyway. Take the high road. And that said, the, the flip side of that is nor do you sell them. You notice I said an IBM, for instance, was my example because I know them well. They're they're big, they're thorough, but I never said that their products could do the thing you need, did I? And I won't sell them either. That's that is not my job. My job is not to sell my competitor's product. By the same token, my job is not to say, and oh, by the way, our product has these three faults you should be aware of. That is not my job either. Unless if you ask me about one of those three things, I you know swallow my gum and I try to address them in a way that's least harmful to me. Right. Okay. That, that's making a lot of sense. Don't badmouth the competition, but don't sell them. Exactly. Let's talk about buy signal. Uh, what is the biggest buy signal? Well, there are a lot of them. One of which is, could I talk to some references? That's always a good thing. You, you, yes, you, yes, you can. <laughs> you know. Well, you want to talk to CEO, COO, CFO, the guy that actually changes the oil. Who do you want to talk to? Because, you know, because I have one and I will get them on the phone with you. Having said that, the minute you leave that guy's office, you better call that other person and go, by the way, <laughs> and here is the nature of our conversation. And I'm pretty sure they're going to ask you about A, B, and C. Are you comfortable with that? Or should I call him back and tell him, oh, some terrible thing has happened in your life and you can't get on the phone? But no, seriously, you, you need to make sure when you give a reference that you tell the reference somebody's coming and what it is to expect, because they're going to feel awkward if somebody just calls out of the blue. And and I would tell you further, buy signals. What's your lead time? It used to be, and it's getting to be that way again now. You know, I, I want three of those. That sounds so good. I need them. Well, I can get you one today, one in six months, and one in six months after that. What is your lead? That'll matter. So if they're asking you that question, that's a very good thing. And and uh, do, do you have, if they ask you something like, well, do you have a purchase and a lease program? Can I acquire this either way? And if they don't ask you anything, you ask them these questions and see how they answer. But the buy signal is if they tell you. Interesting. Yeah. So if they're not asking, you can ask yourself and... Yeah. Just by answering these questions, you'll, you'll yeah. And the, the two questions you really want to get answered are, are: Do you have budget for this this year? Yeah. 
And are you the person who can sign the contract? <laughs> I mean, at some point you want to get down to those. But if they're asking these questions, they give you a very nice launch platform to ask that kind of thing without sounding like you're coming at them obliquely. I mean, you're just, you're just answering their question. Right. Right. It's part of the natural flow. I imagine those kind of questions come later in the seven steps that we talked about. Well, you never know. That's what's funny. I mean, you need to, in your brain, know where you are in that seven-step journey. Yeah. But you're going to get little nuggets that fill in the blanks on any of the seven of them, and it could happen at any time. In a passing comment during the rapport part, you can mm -hmm. pick up some. But you just don't know. You need to listen. Listening is so much more important than speaking in a sales call. It's, it's really an amazing thing. Let's go on to six killer questions. Uh, before we break down six killer questions, first off, do you know what I'm talking about? And second, I, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. Uh, what is the purpose of these six questions? Well, I, I would assume the purpose of the six is to find out are, are, are you doing a decent job and are, are you on the road to being a rainmaker? Okay. <laughs> good, good question to, to ask and answer. Are we on the right track? And it's kind of, it goes into like the preparation part yeah. too, right? It's good to have a framework, good to have an idea of what you want to ask. And I think it probably fits into uh, the seven stages uh, in some capacity. Sure. Let's start at the beginning. What's what's the killer sales question number one? Well, I, you know, that's interesting. This, if you hang around with sales guys, you'll find out can kill many hours in the bar arguing about what is the killer sales question. Are you the decision maker? Do you have budget? Are you an influencer? Do you even know the decision maker? Do you have time to, that I, I'd like to drop by next week and I can come by Wednesday or Thursday. What time works best for you? Uh, those are, those are the killer questions. I mean, you're trying to advance. Does this guy have the ability to buy and will he see me? are really the things you want to get. So pick pick your way to get to that, but that's what it's all about. Let's start with uh, you know, asking about the appointment. Yes. So start with start with that, asking about the appointment. Why why might you want to start there? Well, again, if you go back to the seven steps, you need to develop a rapport with somebody. So that's the first reason. Uh, I've always found that people buy from people they like. And by that, I don't mean people they want to go to the ball game with, but certainly people when they run into you on the street, would be pleased that that occurred and are always happy to spend time to learn more about what you have to tell them that helps their business. So that's a good litmus test on do you fall into that category with this person or is, are we talking chalk and cheese here? Because that's a lot tougher. And I've had both. So uh, there's that. And secondly, if you won't see me, the odds you're going to buy something are pretty slim. At some point, we should have time you know, together, or we'll never get to steps two, three, four. So it's, it's critical. If they stonewall you, why? That's, that has happened. And that's happened a lot over the years. And you have to figure out how do you get around that? Can you talk about that? I imagine that's pretty tough to get around, you know, a stonewall. Yeah. Well, some of the ways that, well, that's where marketing needs to be helpful. And it can be, let me invite you to our company is doing an event. We used to have an event uh, called the Key Customer Symposium where we had John Chancellor and other people that you never heard of because you're too young come speak to groups of business people. And I'd like to invite you to one day of that just to see what we do and just to see the, the, the kind of people that we attract and the kind of thought that we can. We won't talk business. We'll just talk about world events and industry events. But I'd like to, to have you come have a look. Generally, if if they will come to one of those, 
you've kicked the door open or uh, are you going to be at salesforce.com? Are you going to be, there's the big, uh, you know, are you going to be at open world systems? Are you going to be at CES? Could will you have time for a cup of coffee while we're down there? Find a way to get FaceTime. And that used to be a lot easier. I mean, that is the way business was done many years ago. These days, it's it's Zoom, if it is. It's teleconferencing. It's phone calls. It's, sales has changed a lot in, in that, in the personal relationship aspect. Uh, it has changed a lot too. This way, by the way, just there's a sidebar. It used to be one of the reasons people wanted to see you was that you could talk about your product, your customer's product, business. Like Now with Google, people can look up more about your product than you know. And when you get there, they said, I really only have two questions. I know all about your product. Thanks for dropping by. You know, that's that makes it tougher to get through a rapport and getting them to talk about their business. So the game has changed. But at the end of the day, you better find out about their business. You better find out about their need and you better find out if you can help them fix it. Right. So it sounds like the the fundamental piece here with killer question one, asking about the appointment is maybe not to get physical time together, but to just have time together, whether it's a Zoom call or, or something else. It's important to like have rapport where we can meet to talk about stuff. Otherwise, you know, what are we doing here? Exactly. Let's move on to number two, getting the customer involved and to begin the necessary chain of positive agreements. How might you get started or what kind of questions are you asking, I guess? Well, it, it takes it back again. I mean, that the, the framework that I was outlining helps you with this. It said, look, I, I know in your case that uh, let's go to Kraft Foods, t- talking to Quaker Oats, talking to Nestle. I have learned some things and, and some of their problems look like this, like this, like this, like this. Do you have any of those? And by the way, before you ask, you know, they do. And if they say no, they're lying. So then you better pick one that you know they all have, and it because at the last conference of the food industry, they were that's where all the all the breakout sessions were about. But you try to this is where it's really critical to get the customer, the uh, of the potential customer, talking about themselves and their business and and what the I mean we all know in banking today, you know, it, those kinds of questions that begin with I just read yesterday in the Times. Blah, blah, blah. How did that impact you? Those kinds of things. Open questions that make them talk. You want them to talk so that you start agreeing. I've heard of the importance of like, you know, finding agreements. You know, we want to find the the ground that overlaps where we agree. Do you know, like, as humans, why why do you think that's important? Well, I think people like to to be accepted, like to be acknowledged as, as saying something that you find valuable. I mean, what you've just given them is fundamentally a compliment in a very subtle way. That's, wow, geez, Ole, that's a really insightful question. You know, we just saw at Ovaltine this kind of thing happen. It's, it, it is a way to create a bond with somebody with which you had none until that question got asked. Basically, that you are now talking about something where you have a mutual, agreeable point of view. And you can build on that. And also someplace in there, they're going to tell you the thing you really want to know which is, yeah, that's how it works. What's broken here? Give me something that I can fix is what I'm trying to do. (laughs) Well, it is. I mean, any product you're selling to somebody, it needs to be addressing some need they have. And oftentimes, you know, I, I understand the two tank swap problem. What if I told you 
you could eliminate one of the tanks and not even have that problem and eliminate about 40% of your current operating cost. Would that be an interesting topic for you to talk about? Find something that is going to either raise their revenue or lower their expense. Uh, talk about differentiating from the competition. Why might this be important next? Well, it's always important because if you don't have anything different, why do I, I don't want to switch. I am comfortable. I know how theirs works. I've been using it for 26 years and and life is a bowl of cherries. And now you're going to walk and you're telling me, well, that's not quite the way we do it. Well, that's nice. But you know, have you ever heard you can't teach an old dog new tricks? Well, I'm older than Lassie. So, you know, I don't want to learn any new tricks. So you better say, well, that's fine. But again, what if I showed you that this new trick, first of all, it's easier to learn. Uh, Our graphic user interface, as you can see on this Gartner report, which I happen to have right here, uh, leads the industry. This, This, your people need less than one day's training, and you will start to see the benefits of this approach in a day. Is is that something you'd like to learn a little more about? Because I can show you pretty quickly. In fact, I can have you do it right here on your laptop. And if you assume we don't use yours, I can pull out mine. Oh, fantastic. You're uh, making the transition to question number four. Very easy. Uh, talking about a test or demo. Exactly. Demos. There is no such thing as a free demo, by the way. By that, I mean that if we are going to do a, a meaningful demo, several things have to be true. My first question when a customer says, so this is a two-edged sword, because if I say demo, I now have to go back to my company and say, we now need two engineers and this piece of kit, and we need it in you know, Pocatello for three weeks. That costs money. That's money. That's taking assets offline you can't use anywhere else. So you better know what you're doing when you do that. So I always say, let me ask you a question, Oleg. If I can demo demo. I want to leave this here. And by the way, this is something we call the puppy dog clothes. I'll leave this here and you can fondle it for about the next month. Now, if it does all the things we just agreed you need for it to do, are you going to buy it? And that's, there's where you're going to get a buy signal or you're going to get an objection, both of which are what you're after. So for my side, that's now a demo. You go, I don't have time for a demo. Have you ever seen that great cartoon. It's been around forever. It's the the old general. This probably goes back to a war in the 1800s where there's a general and, and a few of his guys and they're standing up overlooking a valley. And down below, you can see maybe their Native Americans are fighting uh, European interlopers. And so you can see tomahawks flying in one direction, rocks flying in the other direction. And there's a guy walking up behind pulling a machine gun and, and, and the general turns to his aide and he goes, I don't have time to talk to a salesman. Now we're in the middle of a battle here. Well, there, there is a downside to doing things that way and not having a demo and not having time to talk to somebody who may, in fact, help you win the war. So a demo. Do you want to do a demo? Show me. Show me that your product can do what you just said. And I'm happy to do that. But understand, it's going to cost me resources. And oh, by the way, it's going to cost you resources to do that. So let's make sure we're doing this to some end. Why do you say it's going to cost you resources? Because you've got people with full-time jobs. I assume they're busy. Well, it's going to take somebody to do this, to, to exercise the, the new solution. And that's what a demo is all about. But I'll tell you what, if you can get somebody to say, well, if it really does this, and if my people can really do it, I know yours can, that's all you guys do. But if my people can really do it, like you said, I'll buy one. 
boom, I'm in there. That is touchdown. That's gold. <laughs> Talk about uh, the escape clause. Why is it important to, you know, uh, ask questions with an escape clause? What is an escape clause? Well, an escape clause, uh, um, which is a misnomer. I mean, if the thing doesn't do what you say it's going to do, the party's over anyway. So, if what, so what I want to say to you, it also known as a conditional sale, by the way. And what, what I'm talking about is an implied conditional sale, which is if it works, will you buy? You say yes. Well, you know, there, there is you are not legally co- contracted now to acquire the thing, but you'd be nuts if you didn't, don't you think? By the same token, if you go in there and your product doesn't do what you said or it becomes, for whatever reason, it just bad fit. Or it doesn't work, which I've seen happen. Not with my product, of course. But when that happens, the guy'd be nuts to buy one. So I don't think you need an escape clause. If you, it goes back to never lie. It goes back to business ethics. If it works, buy it. If it doesn't work, don't buy it. Who needs an escape clause? <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So imply it. How about number uh, number six? We got uh, leave no stone unturned, and you know the question you might ask is, what question should I be asking that I'm not asking? Why is that an important and killer sales question? Well, the first reason it's a killer sales question is that customers love it. I can't believe you didn't ask me about blah blah blah. I mean, they gloat, you dummy. You didn't. You didn't even ask me about humble humble. Well, you learn something about their business when they ask. And you also learn something about the way it's phrased. You quickly learn what they're thinking about you. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, it's it's a great thing to do. And by the way, they may actually tell you, here is something you ought to be asking because it's, we didn't discuss it. And it's really important in our industry, maybe not in everyone, but in our industry it is. So ask me, you know, that's why, I mean, it's good to do. Is there anything on these sales questions that I'm not asking that I should be? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're doing a fine job. Actually. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, if I'm doing fine, <laughs> if I'm doing fine, let's keep going to uh, you know practical aspects and sort of what these look like in practice. Talk about talk about maximizing your selling efficiency or your you know miles per gallon of selling. I guess that you've heard this a thousand times in different contexts, but really the only thing you have is time, and if you are not utilizing your time wisely, then you're, you're not, there's no way you can make enough rain to get wet. You know, you've got to be focused. You've got to be talking to the right people about the right things. Now, how do you get there? Right. One is by asking intelligent questions. Let's make sure you're talking to somebody who really does have the ability to make the decision. Your miles per gallon, you can spend a lot of time. And just because somebody's eager to talk to you, in many cases, I have seen potential customers talk because they think the technology, it's the coming thing and it's really cool. What you don't know yet is they have no budget and they're never going to buy one anyway. But this particular guy happens to have been focused on that kind of solution most of his career. Nobody will listen to him. And now here's a guy coming in with the actual thing. I want to spend time with this guy. And you can just waste a crap load of time with somebody like that. You'll have a great conversation. You'll be bragging. He'll be smiling. You'll be shaking hands. Can you come back? Let's do lunch. You won't sell anything. You better find out that. Who's? Yeah. Well, that's where the rookie rep comes back to the office. How'd it go at craft? They love us. Absolutely. I I talked to Oleg Kuzhikov. He loves us. 
And that's, in fact, I'm going to go out this afternoon. I'm going to order a snowmobile because I know this deal is going to happen. And you aren't even talking to a guy with a checkbook. Yeah. You know? And so that, that uh, yeah, that, that happens. You better qualify. And one of, that's where, I guess I haven't said this, I should. Selling is a team sport. Rainmaker, yes, you need a rainmaker, but you also need all the people around, people that can install the thing, people mm. that can help do the financial charts you're going to need to prove the ROI. Right. It's a team sport. And you better make sure that when you start introducing your team into this situation, that you know what they're going to say. Just here's here's something that rainmakers do that a lot of reps that are kind of mediocre don't do. They understand which of your executives, for instance, are willing to make sales calls, which will never make sales calls. And of those willing, which would you really have the, the nerve to take into your customer? Because I'll tell you what, there are some who are smart as a whip and I would no more let them talk to my customer without a muzzle than I would give them a loaded gun and tell them to spin the chamber because uh, he's going to aim it at you. There are some, you know, you, you, oh boy, I'll tell you what, I've had some CFOs and heads of engineering, heads of engineering, are always risky to let talk to a customer because the customer will ask them some question and they will give exactly the scripted answer you gave them. And then they go, but you know, one thing, if you ever do this on a Tuesday with the, with, you know, like the sun in your eyes, your whole factory could explode. You go, Oh my God, let me just, excuse me, gentlemen, do you mind if I just, you know, rip open my heart right here in this office? Now, I mean, you better make sure you're talking to decision makers. And, and so when you're talking about miles per gallon, don't undo everything you did by bringing in the wrong help. <laughs> right. And making sure you're talking to somebody who can actually influence the outcome. I think it all goes back to preparation. It's like it how does. do you prepare for these moments? It does. Who and, do you have and, in and, the room? Yes. And what are the assets that you have at hand that you can bring to this party? And right. and do you want to bring it? And by the way, a CFO and I would like to talk to your boss. I'd like to meet your boss. I'd like to meet the CFO. You better know when you play that card, you're going to get one turn at bat with that deal. And you better be ready. And don't, I mean, you may want to do that early. Probably you don't. But yes, yes, it has to do with understanding the situation, the opportunity, uh, the client and your resources and, and do your do your homework. Yeah. Yeah, I always thought good salespeople were just kind of born with it. You just walk in the room and you smile, and people are interested in what you have to sell. But absolutely not. I I had I have had salespeople that work for me that you could talk to them for half an hour, and you would never in your life believe that they are salespeople. One of whom, uh, a dear friend of mine, became a dear friend of mine uh, who worked for me, was a kind of a dumpy guy from St. Cloud, Minnesota. And, and he just would be talking to you about stuff, and you don't even know that he's he has got your wallet, he's got your watch, he's reaching for you, and you just don't know because he is just as aw shucks kind of twist this little white part of his hair as he's talking to your guy, and he you know this this is not Willie Loman you got in the room. This is just this technical nerdy gearhead guy, and he was at IBM. He worked for me at IBM. He was what was called an eagle. I told my boss I was going to hire this guy, and he told me I was out of my mind. He's going, are you are you serious? You're going to bring this dust bowl into your customers? He, you, you know, remember you got a number to make, Ed. I'm going, I'm not this guy. I just have a feeling, 
And I'll tell you what, he became an eagle. An eagle is the, was the top 1% of the revenue producers in the IBM Corporation that year. And and this gentleman, Jim, he was one of them. And people said, how in the world does he do it? And he goes, he listens. He listens hard. <laughs> He's very smart. He knows his product. He does his homework. He sticks to the process. He never wavers from going after delivering that solution to that customer, even when the customer doesn't want it. And I want to tell you something, Oleg. The customer is not always right. If the <laughs> customer was always right, they would never need to talk to you to begin with. And second, I give you an example of the customer not being right. You have to you have to respect your customer like you want them to respect you or you're going to get hurt. You are not going to get a deal and it's going to be a drag being around this individual. And I will tell you a, a true tale, which is this. I had uh, telesales working for me in a company, uh, not a startup, but uh, bigger than a startup, but smaller than a approaching the chasm, as we say, if you've ever read Crossing the Chasm. And and I had an individual, one of my reps, a, a, a young woman, come dashing into my office and she said, I need you, I need you, and I was in a meeting, I need you right now to get on the phone. I've got an irate customer and who is just screaming all over me. And I said, he demands to talk to the vice president. And I said, what's his name? And she told me, and we'll call him, uh, we'll call him Tom Reese. That's what we'll call him. And I said, transfer the call in. I'm happy to talk to Mr. Reese. And so she goes back, she comes back and she goes, that's him flashing on, on line three. And so I said, okay. So I punch up line three on the speakerphone. And I said, Hi, is this Tom Reese? And he goes, yes, it is. I said, well, this is Ed Sturbance, and I'm the vice president of sales for such and so. What can I do for you? He goes, Ed, I've never met you, but I don't trust you. Now, I'll just tell you, if you don't defuse that time bomb, this is not going to go well. And so I said, well, Tom, I've never seen you, but I think you're kind of ugly. Okay. Okay, your turn. And I looked over at that rep who was sitting there in this meeting who are now, the, the jaws were just dropping down on the tabletop and the rep is crying, going, you've just ruined my career. And, and so there's this, you can hear the carrier tone on the phone. Nobody's speaking. And I, I'll just tell you in that moment, the next person that talks loses, just so you know. And so I just sat there, five seconds, 10, 15. Finally, Tom Reese, I hear this soft chuckle at the other end of the phone. And he said, Ed, I said, Tom, he goes, can we start over? I, I would be delighted. And he goes, I got a problem. Can you help me? I said, yeah, of course, that's what I do. Tell me your problem. And then about two, three months later, this guy was in Southern California and, and the company was here in the Bay Area. And about a month or two, I guess it was two months later, we had a big event at, at something up here with candlelight, bring your spouse, all of it. And I met him. And I walked up to him and I just said, hi, Tom. I said, you're not as bad looking as I expected. His wife just kind of looked at me and he looked at my name tag and just started cackling. <laughs> and, and we, so he then said, tell her the story. You know, so I did. So that guy ended up being a good customer of ours for a long time. But you, but you can't. If, if, if I'm going to respect you, you better respect me. It's got to be a peer-to-peer -peer relationship, or we're just not going to get business done. Right, right, right. the 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 thesis there was customer. The customer is not always right, quote unquote. Exactly. The spirit of the rule is respect your customer. 
Um, yeah, and, and, and you must, but you must also get respect. Otherwise, you're just otherwise if you get him as a customer, he's going to be a pain in the butt for the rest of your career. Because they're going to be demanding. They're just, you don't want to be in that relationship. By the way, you don't want to be in that relationship at home either, but we'll cover that in another lecture. (laughs) Next podcast. Save it, save it. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Let's keep going. Uh, Talk about cold calls. What's the problem today with cold calls and uh, what's an alternative solution that might be useful instead? Well, cold calls are hard. Cold calls are hard because you you have no rapport with somebody. You get a million of them a day. You don't want to talk to any of them. And it's just going to be hard to get traction to get into the process. And I would tell you that, you know, there is a thought that says cold calls don't work. Well, they do. They do work, but they work like one in a million where you're looking for one in eight. And and again, it takes you back to miles per gallon, miles per cell. You just don't have time. You just don't. And I'll tell you further, there's no say, do you know what a bluebird is? If I told you, you know, buddy of mine got a bluebird. That's a deal that flew in the window. He got the commission check and he didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. I've never seen one, never mm-hmm. seen one. And it's cold calls are like that, but actually cold calls can work and, and they can, they can work, but they're awfully expensive. Here is where the role of marketing is all important. If you have decent marketing, uh, not decent marketing. That's sales and marketing are like the cobra and the mongoose. You let's need to imagine. know that. Yeah, let's imagine. Let's imagine for a second. Let's imagine for a second. You have, yeah, <laughs> that you have strong marketing as we do in our firm. Right. Uh, their number one job is to deliver to me qualified, qualified leads, oh which means they did the cold calling. They weren't trying to sell anything. They were just trying to find people who might qualify to that have the need, but they don't know they need you. And so when you get to them, they already know why you're there and they know where you're, who you're from, but cold calls awfully, awfully hard. And I don't know a single rainmaker. Well, that's not true. I know one that started in the, in the telesales department and, and earned their way out of it. But man, oh man, that is a tough, tough ride. I don't want any part of it. And I've had that department work for me in what, six, seven different companies. And it's always so hard. And I always, I, I always made it a point to at least two, three times a week, pop into that department and just stir the pot for 15, 20 minutes and tell them I loved them. Because, man, <laughs> without them, you're dead. But I don't know how those people could do it. I mean, I just I go home at night and slip my wrists. I just that's a very cold calling is very, very hard. Yeah. And it, it kind of gets back to the thing we've been talking about the whole time. Like what, what, what's happening when you're cold calling, you don't really know your customer. So that pre- preparation is like, you can only do half of it, right? You can learn your product, but you can't really understand who you're selling. Exactly. You, know, you really can't. And you know, nothing about the individual you're yeah. talking. It's just really hard. You and, and remember, we're talking about rainmakers here, not, not just, you know, somebody who's doing okay. We're talking about, these are the people that are going to carry, put your company on their shoulders and carry you to success, carry you to the IPO, carry you over the top of the 2 billion, 4 billion, $10 billion mark. Mm -hmm. So they're not cold calling. What about shots on goal? Why is it never a bad play for a rainmaker to uh, do a shot on goal? Because you make 0% (laughs) of the shots you don't take. If you're going to try to nail one, it ne- I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? A guy says no. Yeah. Well, no is a good thing. No, why, Bob? <laughs> sure, we've agreed you need it. I know you've got the budget. And I know you've got the authority. Will you tell me no? Yeah. Let's cut to the chase here. Well, let's go back to the ROI on this deal that we agreed was there. You can start it a year from now. You can start it five years from now. 
do you have a dollar? <laughs> you know, I can take you right to here's give me a dollar. I'll give you 10. You want to do it again? Well, let's do it again next year. Or do you want to do that like once a minute for the rest of your life? That's why you got to take the shot. It's never, it never hurts to ask for the order. Never. Now, having said that, you better know how to gracefully take <laughs> the whack you sometimes get for doing it, but that's okay too. And, and it often susses out that last objection, by the way. You know, I, I, I agree. We've agreed on all these points. However, what we haven't fixed is this. And you go, by God, I have found the end of the rainbow. Because they're about to tell you the, the, the answer. And also, by the way, this is a good time to remind you, and every rainmaker will tell you it's true, that the selling doesn't actually start till the customer says no. Hmm. What do you mean? Wow. I mean, when you go in to say, I've got this really good thing, and they go, wow, I'll take a thousand of those. <laughs> that didn't happen. Well, what did happen? The guy said, I don't need any. Well, wait, that's no, right? Well, wait, maybe you do. Let's talk about that. So that's what selling is about. Selling is about finding out what that no is and slapping it down and getting them to sign where the line is dotted. That's what it's all about. Right. If there's no no, then then what did the salesperson even do? They're, they they, they whip out an order lost. sheet and they get the hell out of the office before they mess it up. That's what yeah. they do. So maybe, that, yeah, maybe if... Uh... You know, the sale doesn't begin till there's a no. And if you never hit a no, then then maybe those bluebird sales do exist. Yes. And since I have never in 50 <laughs> years seen a bluebird, I am suggesting to you that it never <laughs> hurts to ask for the order, even if the guy says no, because that is the green light for you to start going, really? Well, let's go back over what we've discussed and let's get to yes. Yeah. Okay, let's start to wrap it up here. I got one more question yeah. uh, before like a closing question. You've mentioned the kind of ROI and return and analysis, maybe not in those words, but return analysis several times. It's kind of the whole point behind your $1 for $10 um, metaphor there. Just talk about why it's important. How do you find an ROI? Because I imagine that's not like that's a calculation. How do you figure out what it is and how powerful is it when you're trying to sell something? Well, let, let me take that. A, a, from a different angle for a second, which is this. Generally speaking, the way ROI hurts you is if you don't address the following question, because often it's presented to you this way. And, and I learned this at IBM because IBM was known to be more expensive than anybody else. We were like Clorets. We cost a little more, but we do so much more, as they used to say. You have to understand the difference between the price of something and the cost of something. And that is something that a rainmaker knows very well and knows how to position. So if somebody goes, yeah, but your stuff is so expensive, you go, stop. Let us talk about the, this is kind of like saying the wedding is expensive, but if you think the wedding is expensive, will you see what matrimony costs you over 20 years? You know, now here we're talking about the price. The price is like the wedding. I'm talking about total cost of ownership over 10 years. Now you compare mine and yours, and you're going to find out that that price is is kind of a loss leader. You're going to get something with very little downflop, and you'll have it. But then you've got to maintain it. You've got to learn how to use it. You've got to make your, your people learn how to use it. And, and that's where you get to the ROI. Why is the ROI impor important? Because people are going to look at, did you, if you drove my revenue up, what did it cost me? If I had to spend a hundred dollars and my revenue went up $60, is that a win? No. 
you have just saved me $60, but it cost me $100 to do that. Is that a win? No. So you got to get the ROI into terms that your prospect, your customer can understand and make them clearly understand using a tossed, total cost of ownership model over time. This You're not buying something. This is an investment. This is an investment in a tool that is going to take your revenue up and or your expenses down. And let's use your numbers and I can just show you. I'll first show you what we did at Hershey. Then I'll show you what we did at Nestle. Now we'll talk about what we can do here at Ovaltine. And you'll see that is the key to success for this company. And oh, by the way, for your career. All right. Well, thank you for breaking that down. Sure. Um, <laughs> so at the end of each podcast, we try to ask kind of a big question, big picture question. And so uh, what I got for you today is, you know, if you could go back uh, in the time machine and give yourself at, say, 20 years old, a piece of advice, or you were giving a piece of advice to, say, a young podcaster at that age, what would you tell them after all these years of, of knowing, of learning and sort of becoming a rainmaker? Well, it's something we touched on earlier. That's a great question, by the way. I, I would tell you, don't be afraid to reach for the brass ring. Don't be afraid to go for the big deal. Don't be afraid to ask for the order. The fear of failure gets in the way of more people than the effort to succeed does. And, and I'm just telling you at your age, and if I were your age again, I would have asked for more orders. I took six months to get to something I could have done in six weeks. I just know it many times because I didn't just go, well, hell, you've checked all the boxes. Why am I not just getting the order here? Because I didn't ask for it. You know, it just don't. Huh. Be sure of yourself. Do your homework so you're confident when you do what you do. And I guess what I would tell you at the end of the day, the words that I live by and succeeded by, as it turns out, are that selling is a team sport. But I've always believed being one of 15 kids, life is a team sport. So just look around and see who all the people are that want you to win. There are always one or two that want you to fail, but there are a lot more that want you to win. It can help you use them, use them wisely, know their strengths and weaknesses, bring them at the right time Two, never lie. I've said that before. Yeah. Salesmen get a reputation for being liars. They're not liars. The good ones, the real rainmakers, the industry giants that you've read about in book, they don't lie. They tell the truth. They help you see the truth, and they tell the truth. And lastly, what as you go through your career, Oleg, best advice I can give you, and I've talked about selling doesn't start till the customer says no. Well, here are three things that are true about that. If you want to be a rainmaker in whatever you choose to do, when the customer says no, when the prospect says no, when your boss says no, first, don't hear no. Secondly, don't see no. And thirdly, don't understand no. You just keep going. If you think you're right, you go. And take that shot on goal. More doubt than that, you're going to get a goal. Yeah. Well, Ed, I am really glad we, we recorded all this. There's a lot of advice in here that I'm going to want to go back and listen to again. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing. And before we get out of here, what's the best way for listeners to reach you or maybe listen to your quartet perform once uh, <laughs> you're performing again, I guess? Yeah, well, we are going to start performing again uh, in a very limited fashion next month. Uh, they can find me at ed at com if they want to drop me a note or ask me a question or give me an answer for anything they think I got wrong. I'm tough. I can take it. <laughs> and if you want to hear really good, tight, four-part vocal harmony, it's the Fault Line Acapella Chorus. And we're in San Mateo County. So Fault Line Acapella Chorus, just Google us. You'll find us. 
Fantastic. You guys got to do uh, like what ACDC did on their latest music video. You know, they all th- sort of recorded from their own green room and then they could kind of put it all together. So we actually have been doing that for the last year. We, we have been recording the four different parts. And one of our guys is, is a pretty tech heavy guy and he sews them together and syncs them up. And it sounds like music. It's pretty good. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to end the show there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and share this episode. Uh, special thanks to Ed for joining the show today. We appreciate your time. Thanks for joining. It was uh, it was our pleasure. I was delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you.